Podcast Revolution Network presents. The Way with Noah. everyone and welcome to a special edition of the way with Anoa. i am here with uh my friend and colleague nora benavidez um nora and i first got together down here in georgia uh, she's an amazing uh civil human rights lawyer litigator and is now heading up uh u.s and free expressions program for pen america she's their director um we're talking to you today it's world press freedom day and I mean, there's so much to talk about in terms of freedom of the press. What actually does it mean to have a free press in terms of democracy, both internationally, but definitely, you know, here at home in light of some of the things we've seen over the past year or two. Um, But then also there's this growing conversation about disinformation, right? Post-2016, we had a lot of conversation about election interference. And there's been some conversation about disinformation, but Nora has done some trainings and guidance around this as well. So I was really excited when she had some time to come and join me. So thank you, Nora. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, I love it. I'm so happy to be here. And it's so funny to me for us to be formal together. Um, And we'll see if we can last during this conversation. Because I've been wanting to be on this podcast for a long time. So (laughs) it's great to be here. Um, It kind of feels like we're not really on it, but oh well. I'll try really hard to be professional. No, you're funny. You're so funny. But like... But, Nora, can you just talk to us a little bit about the work you've been doing with PIN America and just how it ties into um, press freedom? Sure, sure. Um, you know, it's so interesting. A lot of the work that we do, I felt when I started at PEN in 2018, a lot of the issues and the threats to free speech and free expression were really, really diverse and also disparate. And over the last year and a half, I've seen – so many of the problems around expression and, frankly, threats from government and elected officials um, in the United States become more and more relevant for everyday people. And so many now of the issues that we work on, that we monitor, seem to be just kind of coalescing almost, that a lot of things are now intertwined. And we can talk a little bit more about some of that. I think You know, we have always, as an organization, worked on defending journalists and writers who are targeted for their work. And press freedom, when you think about that term, I think actually feels kind of abstract. You know, it feels like, sure, uh, ostensibly I could agree with we should have a free press, but in practice, what does that actually look like? And, you know, one of the things that we have grown concerned about and that I've been monitoring are the ways that we have elected officials and the way our president in particular in this country targets journalists for coverage that he dislikes, which I think is kind of a problem now that we're seeing across the board, that dissenting opinions and critical coverage, whether it's news or writing, that unfortunately that is becoming more and more met with efforts to censor that type of content and that kind of speech. So, you know, the president will not be above 
removing journalists from press briefings when they ask questions that he doesn't like. He did that with Jim Acosta um, in 2018. He's done it with reporters like Brian Karam, Dana Milbank. There's really kind of this now litany of journalists, a lot of whom are members of PEN America and who I don't think, you know, feel some quivering sense of fear. But these actions definitely create a kind of chilling effect around the country where people, you know, both at the local and state level, as well as I think federally, now wonder, you know, how will my writing, how will coverage be treated? And if you say something that the president doesn't like, he will simply remove you from a briefing. And that just, it doesn't just affect those journalists. It affects all of our communities who then aren't able to read the article that would have been written or aren't able to get a sense of what type of coverage could be critical of what the administration is doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you framing in that context like that. And recently um, there was a, a at least a first-level court victory um, involving some of the issues in terms of the Trump administration and his barring um, and the barring of reporters from press briefings. Can you just talk to me a little bit about um, some of the legal strategy you all have been involved in? Sure. Well, we sued the president um, in October of 2018 for his what we call an ongoing censorship pattern or a pattern of retaliation. And it's really mm-hmm. a First Amendment case trying to hold the president accountable for these types of actions where he targets and retaliates against reporters and where he also revokes national security clearance passes for former um, like national security advisors who also, um, well, let me back up, you know, in 2018, I think a lot of people thought um, we're very skeptical of the lawsuit. You know, we brought it at a time when the openness and sort of public acceptance of how troubling Trump's tactics were, were really just not out in the open as much. And as an organization, PEN America decided to sue him because I think what we've seen is this sort of slow encroachment into democracy and away from a commitment to ideals that our democracy, particularly the First Amendment, should um, be allowed to practice you know, whether it's our members or the public. So when we brought this lawsuit, um, you know, we fought in our lawsuit instances where members that are Pan American members uh, that the president held. And so the big legal victory, it's so funny because we're still really early in the case. Um, it's now been almost a year and a half since we filed. And just a few weeks ago, we got a victory where the court decided that the case can continue. And I try to talk about it in like relatively simple terms, but essentially the government wanted to have the court dismiss the case, saying that we never asserted any kind of viable claim. And what the court came back with, it's taken this long now since we filed, but the court came back saying, actually, there are viable First Amendment claims here. And that every time the president threatens to remove a journalist, let's say, from press briefings or threatens to take some other action, we cannot see those as simply threats because very often he then acts on those threats by actually taking some kind of action, such as removing someone or revoking their press pass. And so it seems like, at least when I read the ruling from the court, of course I was excited and we're really pleased to move forward into what's called the discovery phase. 
But we're also excited because I think it's really a kind of recognition that the threats and the verbal attacks that we're seeing, the way that reporters are being denigrated and talked down to and kind of like verbally abused by the president are things that absolutely rise to then retaliatory actions when he decides to do something against them. And it's just shocking. I mean, it feels like behavior that is a precursor to authoritarianism. You know, if a leader doesn't like something, they silence that person. And that is absolutely not what our Constitution and what the First Amendment stand for. Mm-hmm. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, and like, <laughs> no, 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 seriously, right? Like, mm-hmm, 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 okay. But, but just looking at the broader context of what we're talking about, because we are seeing this, um, this happening in this one realm in terms of, like, how people are permitted to cover and access to being able to cover, right? Like, like uh, you know, philosophical conversations look at journalism, theoretical conversations look at journalism as, like, the fourth state of democracy, so to speak. So, like, it's another yeah. part of a functional democracy, having a free, a free press. But, like, what does it really mean to have a free press? Like, you started off talking about that a little bit in the beginning of our conversation. Like, it's kind of like this amorphous concept. And we're really breaking it down. Like, what are we really talking about when we're talking about a free press? And what kind of stories and coverage should we be thinking about um, or looking for from a, quote, unquote, free press? Oh, I love that question. I think about this, though, talking about media and talking about news have not been very exciting for civil rights or constitutional issues or even free speech. You gravitate, like generally I don't think communities think about, oh, well, local news is what matters. And yet it's central to everything. We know that when there is strong and robust local news, reporters can serve as watchdogs, you know, to lower and help minimize government corruption. And at the same time, when local reporters actually don't exist or local coverage of communities is very low, actually voter turnout is um, also lower. People don't run for office as often. Kind of all location in our democracy go down when local news doesn't exist. And we actually produced a report examining that very phenomenon uh, this past November in 2019 because we began getting really worried about what the state of local news looks like and trying to make relevant for people what press freedom means. Um, You know, we held this event last spring, almost exactly one year ago in Georgia. Um, It was about, it was an exploration of press freedom and democracy. And I was so excited sort of for our very first year that we celebrated World Press Freedom Day, which is coming up now this uh, Sunday. And when we held this event, it was in Georgia, so I got to come home, which was great. And we had Stacey Abrams come speak. And part of what she spoke about was the inextricable link between democracy and journalism. And that when we don't have information or when we don't have access to the stories and news that are happening in our communities, we're less connected to what's happening, which is a no-brainer when you think about it. But it's reached a kind of fever pitch now, I think, actually. And people are finally, maybe because of the pandemic that we're facing, I think Mm -hmm. people are kind of like waking up to the power that local news has and how important it is. Because I'm not talking about the New York Times and I'm not talking about the Washington Post or Fox News. Like those are outlets and frankly, large institutions that are okay in many ways. And they exist um, and will exist 
for all of the memberships that they get. But there are other much more local organizations and news outlets that are dying around the country. And as they have slowly died off, communities are not being covered. Mm-hmm. Even when there are communities that do get some coverage, I think there are these unique examples where like minority communities and other more marginalized groups just do not get represented in media enough, nor is news critical enough of the institutions that have led to circumstances that minority and underrepresented groups actually deal with on a regular basis. And Mm -hmm. so in thinking about like, and I I really want it to be a conversation because I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well. Like in thinking about what news should look like, I think we have to be asking really challenging questions like, well, one, how can we save local news and and get funding for journalists, you know, to do more reporting? But, and that's absolutely important. And I can tell you about what we're working on on that front. But I also think if we're going to really get money, let's imagine we get that. We have to challenge the media industry to cover stories about communities in creative ways and in meaningful ways that are telling stories that frankly get sidelined. No, I absolutely agree. And of course we're going to have a conversation, but I really want to hear your expert opinion first, (laughs) but no, I I think what you're saying is spot on in terms of how we won. We, we, We have a serious crisis in local journalism and we are seeing, you know, groups like ProPublica, and yep. some, the Knight Foundation, I mean, there are some really innovative ways that we're seeing local um, news outlets being um, infused either with new talent through fellowships and grants and other opportunities. Like, I am forever grateful for there is a um, journalist from West Virginia, Ken J. Ward, forever grateful for the coverage he did. I mean, he's done tons of amazing um, coverage, particularly around environmental justice issues for a long time. But, like, when we had our chemical spill in 2014, which is why you all got blessed with me in Georgia? Um, you know, Ken's Ken, Ken coverage was life-saving for so many of us. He kept us very well informed of not just what was happening in terms of the response, you know, accountability or lack thereof, but also really I think Ken's, Ken's coverage helped push the needle in terms of the state and federal response as well because it was, it was not handled well. So you, your point about local journalism, having local stories told, and then also on the flip side, like who, is, who are the funders, who are the decision makers, and who are bottom lining what is newsworthy or what message should be sent out? I mean, a good example of that is that viral video that went around about Sinclair Broadcasting, um, you know, own outlets. And actually, I was reading a piece recently, and it was talking about there was one local station, I can't remember what state it was in, that is a Sinclair-owned outlet, but they were just like, our core is, as journalists, is to the news, to objectivity and the truth. So no, we're not just reading off of a script. We're bucking that trend. And so, and they had this whole digital media piece around like what they were doing as a, as a, as a newsroom. And so I've been reading more about like stepping more full-time into journalism right, coverage, doing electoral justice coverage, et cetera, full-time now, like really starting to understand what does it mean to be accountable, you know, for the creation and production of news content, and then who, who depicts what is newsworthy, who makes that decision. And I think what you're saying is actually correct, because, you know, so many outlets, even though there is some really good content out there, there is also this really, like, focused horse race way of covering things like elections, or they yeah. only show up and cover you know, issues like voting rights and voter suppression when there's like some really good news hook 
air quote, good news hook, instead of really seeing the value and importance of just telling this story, because people need to know about the triumphs, the the challenges, and the successes of different communities doing this work, right? So it's just interesting when when people will finally show up because they're about to close down all the polling locations in a place and it has just a good visual image and tagline versus the fact that, you know, over a 10-year period, thousands of polling locations were, were closed all over the country, right? It's like, it's like the way we conceptualize and digest news media, as well as the focus of digital work in terms of, like, making sure it's SEO keyword, we lose so much. <laughs> we yeah. lose so much, right, of the story to be told and of what's happening. And I, I, and, and I really do think the COVID-19 pandemic, for all the issues and problems, this moment and watching journalism really respond is fascinating because yeah. my hope is that people will push for innovative conversations coming out of this about how we fund journalists, how we decide what is important to cover and who is important to have their voices lifted up, right? Because even when we're centering conversations, you know this from your own experience, doing, you know, with legal practice, even when we're centering conversations around criminal justice issues, for example, oftentimes it's not to directly impact the communities and people whose voices, right? It's advocates, it's attorneys, it's everyone. And not to say that advocates aren't also directly impacted people, but it's usually people with higher, with with large platforms or high visibility and name recognition and not people who are doing the real ground day-to-day work, even with attorneys, right? You may have a more higher level person with a bigger name versus people who are actually doing the day in, day out, you know, jail support and stuff. So it's just really interesting when we start thinking about this. And and that's why, like, kind of just getting more involved in, you know, independent, progressive-backed media, um, just really thinking more about how do we center the stories, because you and I both know there's so many amazing people who do the work. They don't necessarily have time to worry about lifting up the story of that work, right? And I do feel like there is an onus on those of us who have arc bent towards equity and justice who also happen to be in journalism to make sure that those stories are heard. And I don't think that that takes away from the value of journalism just because that is a part of the arc and the focus. Well, I totally agree that we have to reframe and, and like push for reframing what journalism and what stories are newsworthy. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember intuitively when I was litigating, I would come up, I mean, there's just so many layers here because absolutely impacted communities and voices that don't get lifted up need to be included. But I remember even when I was litigating, there was no interest in even covering some of the constitutional litigation I worked on because it just wasn't newsworthy. And so as much as I'd love to, exactly. And like, I'd love for my clients to be promoted, but honestly, I'd love just the issues period to have been promoted. And I remember Mm -hmm. there was, there was just very, very little interest in talking or reporting on, for example, criminal justice issues, even voting issues, ongoing issues where assaults on protest are concerned. And so, you know, it even back then, I remember before really working more extensively with journalists and in this ecosystem to analyze like what's actually happening and how can we move the needle. I remember just intuitively feeling like we have to find ways to find certain and different types of stories mm-hmm. worth telling. And, and that's going to take a really long time of like a lot of us, you know, all hands on deck talking about the need to shift what we're talking about actually. 
So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, and then, you know, I, I'm seeing some really promising models right now where outlets such as nonprofits, um, as well as just new types of outlets, um, I think Prism is one, Zora is another, that are elevating different types of stories are great examples of what you can do better. And there are then models of bringing people news in new ways. So there are groups that are doing text-based mm-hmm. services, you know, like giving communities news on their phones because they don't have any other outlet, you know, or any other, like, means of connecting. And those are really promising ways where I think we're beginning to see people value information and news in new ways that isn't just kind of, oh, the traditional news media industry or something. So it's really mm-hmm. exciting, actually. But at the end of the day, the industry just needs more money. I mean, that's honestly the problem now is that there's just not enough. And um, I think we've seen something like 33,000 journalists and staff around the country get furloughed, laid off, or mm-hmm. have their pay cut during the pandemic. And it's this really weird, ironic moment where, on the one hand, people are clearly wanting and turning to news more because we're all, like, sitting at home. We're worried we're not sure – you know, what are the guidelines? What, what are right. behaviors that we should be engaging in? So we're turning the news more, but then we're also being met with, for the reporters that are giving us information, many of them are just getting laid off then because of the further sort of decimation of the financial issues. I mean, I think you also raised a good point about the funding and then also who has the money, right, and how we are being – um, it's a battle on multiple fronts. It's a battle on the funding front. It's a battle on the shifting narratives and getting people to see value in telling the stories of various communities. But then it's also a battle in terms of like widespread massive disinformation networks, many yeah. of which are domestic. Um, we are seeing, you know, that was a good segue, Anella. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, but we are seeing we are seeing this massive difference, and particularly we're in an election year. But whether it's an election year or not. There are, you know, individuals and, in, I mean, on the, on the political spectrum that are focused on, you know, whether it's actually to get people to move to action or just to misinform and, or influence people to sit out. But we do have, I saw a tweet the other day, I think I was sharing it with you before we, before we started, I saw a tweet the other day from um, the head of Turning Points USA or whatever. He was like, mm. you know, we sit back this money because we would never take government money and, and we don't want government money and all this other stuff. And it's like, but dude, to get the money, it's like returning the small business loans. It's a lot of, you know, um, folks have probably been watching following you know, a lot of organizations or companies that have received these loans are larger organizations like the MBA, some very large national restaurant chains, while actual small businesses legitimately have been left out. Have not, not that that's legitimate, but like legitimate small businesses, actual small businesses have actually been left out of the disbursement for small business loans. Oh, and yeah. it's been estimated upwards of like 98% of those small businesses owned by, you know, BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous, POC folks, are actually going to be left out as well. So it was yep. so funny reading this because it's like, but dude, in order to have <laughs> been able to return the money, you have to have applied and asked for the government money. So either they asked for the government money just to make a big show of talking about they didn't want it, or they got caught red-handed and then had to, like, fess up. But either way, that's not, like, the hugest example of disinformation, but that's just a slight example of, like, the type of insidiousness because that's, that's just real basic, Right. 
Like, there are some things that are very legitimate. Like, I'll see people sharing, like, posts that are really critical of Democrats, and folks should be. Folks should be critical of all politicians and political parties and stuff. But then when you look at, like, who the post is from or what the organization is behind it, it's like, oh, yeah, this is like, like, yes, this one point being made is accurate, but then you go and you look at some of the other stuff being said. I myself made this mistake retweeting a um, – <laughs> I retweeted something one day, and I actually I had never heard the outlet. I clearly knew it was satire. It clearly was satirical. It was hilarious. And I retweeted. But I love that you're admitting it. Okay. And then I got this like, whole lecture from a couple of my followers about how that was a horrible, atrocious, racist, right-wing site. <laughs> but there's a lot of these sites. Like, I'm usually really good about it, too, right? But this is how, like, this is how, like, deep it can go that you could see a post from something that you've never heard of. And it's, like, these sites that we've never heard of, but they still have millions of followers and viewers. I was just telling my dad about, you know, we have a smart TV in the house, and, like, they have the free channels, like your Pluto TV and stuff like that. But these people also have, like, their own TV stations and stuff, right? Like, they have their own stations on these, so they can just, it's like conservative America. And it's not that I'm saying that conservatives shouldn't talk about their issues and have their own shows, but there is a particular, like, subsection, not the far out there, Alex Jones, crisis after stuff. Like, there is, like, real, legit disinformation because it appears real. It appears truthful and fact factual. Can you talk to us a little about the disinformation work that you've been been digging into? Yes, and you bring up so many points. I think you were <laughs> so right. I mean, on, on a lot of fronts. I guess, you know, I think it's it sounds corny to talk about it when you frame it as truth, but that's honestly what we're dealing with is an assault mm-hmm. on truth. And then we, we've always had political propaganda, like as societies. You know, we've right. had manipulation and I mean American newspapers would throw the dirtiest muddiest allegations you know where people would feature stories um, about political opponents just to try to sully their reputations and we've seen propaganda um, actually the term disinformation they think was originated in Russia around like KGB activity to try to shame mm-hmm. and manipulate opinions so it's so interesting that, like, we've always had that. I mean, whether you want to call it lies, where people are always bending facts and trying to bend storytelling for public opinion and to shape what we think. But honestly, the advent of the digital age feels like what we've seen now is a proliferation and an automated proliferation of false and misleading content that over time is, can happen so quickly that humans – cannot keep up to try to monitor and even stem what we're seeing. And it's fascinating as a phenomenon. Like, I have to think back. I remember when I didn't believe or maybe didn't want to believe that disinformation actually was a real phenomenon. Like, I remember thinking in 2017, I was like, no way. Like, I don't want to believe this. I don't want to believe somehow that, you know, agents in other countries, whether it's Russia or China or wherever in the Middle East, like that they are gaining public opinion through either bots or trolls or other means. And yet that's what we're seeing. And we're also now seeing domestic U.S. actors trying to shape and manipulate with disinformation campaigns. And part of what we do at PEN America is, one, we've been examining 
what the effect is on elections. Mm -hmm. You know, how does false content online and how do these campaigns affect voter turnout and how do they affect our general feeling towards media as well as ourselves? And basically, all of this erodes public trust in institutions. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's the period in terms of if you want like a headline. But I think there's also this other thing that I can't just simply, as an expert in this space, feel comfortable telling people you should only become more skeptical. There have to be ways for us as people to not just become so skeptical that we'll never believe anything. And it's a really hard line to walk. And so what we've been doing is in trying to balance the free speech issues, you know, so often tech companies will try to take actions to remove or flag content that they think might be mis- or disinformation. Mm-hmm. And they do that actually often ending up with the unintended consequence, if you want to say unintended, I don't know, um, of removing legitimate speech and of censoring and chilling people. And so one mm-hmm. of the things that we've come back to at Penn is that we need to find ways to actually empower users like you and me to mm-hmm. better discern what we're looking at, which doesn't just mean be more skeptical, but just be really smart. And I love, love that you admitted that you shared something questionable because I try to always tell people about the stories where I fall prey to these issues as well. Like, mm-hmm. because humans were finally away from society. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so my favorite was I was laying in bed. It was like a Sunday morning or something. And I saw the photos of the Venice canals and the swans that were in the Venice canals. And I was so moved. I was like, wow, you know, nature is just flourishing now. This really truly is the like one silver lining. I totally, right. totally fell prey. Right. And I was in the middle of drafting an Instagram post, I remember. And I was like, going to do this long winded, like I'm at home, but look at how society will be okay. And I was like, you know, I don't know. This photo just doesn't feel right. And it ended up being a totally legitimate photo, but it was not actually taken during the pandemic and these swans I ended up confirming are in and around the Venice canals all the time and so it wasn't like disinformation it wasn't I don't think horribly ill-intended you know and manipulated content but it was appropriated in ways that were incorrect mm-hmm. and it made me as the viewer think something different And it was, what was the thing? Like, I think about my emotions where it played into my wanting to share it. You know, I wanted that hormonal boost of dopamine when everyone likes what I post. And it all contributes to this experience of online where you see something incendiary or beautiful or moving and you want to share it. And that is the very nature of what disinformation plays on is our interest in getting to that emotional point and sharing emotional things. And um, I think we just need to become a bit more clinical, unfortunately, and begin to think, you know, can I verify, can I fact check something before I share it, which is not exciting, like totally not exciting to to promote. But it is wonderful to think that maybe we're all publishers in a way of the content Mm. that we see. And like, if you, Anoa, are in charge, if you feel empowered as an online user, to think critically of what your news feed is, you're not going to be just a passive, you know, viewer or consumer. You're going to be someone that actually then can say, well, I don't like the things that I see here, but let me confirm if they're real. 
or I love what I'm seeing and moved by something, and you can begin to think critically, why am I moved? Why do I want to share? And I really believe it centers on making people feel like they actually have some level of like autonomy and agency in what they're doing online. Because we're really reaching this point of having entire digital personas and lives. And we need to think about who those people are if we're really going to have an, an online persona. And we need to be empowered as publishers to then stop and think before we share. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love see, that. I get really into this. this no, no, no. I the most fun stuff. I love that you said that when we start thinking about ourselves as publishers of content, not just simply passive, passive viewers or passive sharers, right? Because yeah. when you think about when we talk about journalism and sourcing and really starting to get into the meat and potatoes, like of, of having good content and of accurate, right, and fair content, like I appreciate that. And, and again, yes, I shared the story because, like, I mean, I try, I try to walk the talk, right? Like, I mean, this is it good. It humanizes the experience in the world. Like, if you could talk about it, people will probably feel more permission. Because mm-hmm. the worst thing is that then people get embarrassed. Like, if right. someone tags you and they're like, you should never have shared this article, how could you do that? Like, the problem is we are all victims of disinformation campaigns. Some of them right. are, like, really immediate things. Like COVID, you know, information that if you swallow bleach, you'll be cured of coronavirus. Like, you could potentially fall prey to that. I'm not sure you would because I feel like that's now been so widely debunked. But the longer, like what I call slow simmer campaigns that are trying mm-hmm. to shape our attitude, we all fall prey to that all the time. It's certainly in the election context, and it's an election year. And so part of what we're doing is, because I know I haven't talked about this, is we're doing virtual trainings for communities like every other week now on these issues to help mm-hmm. them learn to identify how to, you know, spot myths and disinformation, which are different. Mm-hmm. And I always cover that in the trainings. And then also just like, why is this an urgent threat to democracy? Why is this something that in an election year we need to care about? And it gets back to the publisher point that I think we do need to feel empowered. as users. Right. So, I mean, actually, you just also note another thing. Talk to us about the difference between misinformation and disinformation, because I know what I think of in my head. And while I switch, I switch between the two words, I don't necessarily always use them interchangeably. But I know when there's like like disinformation seems to have like a certain level of intent, you know, thinking back to I don't know if anybody watched uh, Legally Blonde <laughs> about the first year. Talk about Ms. Rhea. Literally, no one talks about Ms. Rhea in real life, but. I love it. Um, So there are increasingly a few different uh, definitions. Okay. um, I'm happy to walk you through them. Um, There is, and people sometimes use them interchangeably. Experts often will use only one. Um, And if you're not familiar with the differences, I think it can be also alienating to hear these Mm -hmm. different terms. And you're like, what? Like, what are the differences? So, um, disinformation. This is information that is false and deliberately created to harm people, which you are completely right. It has this intent aspect that whatever the product is, you know, the information, whether it's a video, a news article, uh, whatever it is, it has been created with the intent to mislead people. So mm-hmm. that is what disinformation is. Misinformation is it's kind of easier to think of because of the myth. It's almost like mistakes. 
creating also false information, but it wasn't created with the intent to mislead and can sometimes even be errors in reporting. Like if you think about news outlets that are putting out articles and maybe they used, for example, a bot who was a Twitter source without confirming that that source was not real and whatever they were linking to was misinformation. Or when you, Anoa, share something like, let's pretend you shared on Facebook to your friends because you felt your civic duty you know, was to share credible information. You shared an article that if you are gargling with saline, it'll help eliminate coronavirus in your mouth. I would probably say you didn't share that to cause harm to your friends, right? You did it because you actually probably thought, oh, I want to help my friends right now. Let's share this. So you were not engaging in disinformation. You were engaging in misinformation. And then the final one, which is kind of newer and people don't talk about as much, is malinformation. And that is really misappropriated information um, that is manipulated. So a lot of videos we see are malinformation. They're based on reality and they actually are real. They're not fake or false but they have been translated and used in ways where the context is different. So I'll give you an example. Um, in the COVID context, videos proliferated and kind of started surfacing of food frenzies at grocery stores. And at the time, it seemed like maybe this was disinformation, people trying to somehow upend like food infrastructure. But it was finally realized that a lot of these videos were real videos from about 2013 and that they were just reappropriated to make people feel like it was happening right now. And that is also another form of this myth and disinformation, which people refer to in the field as malinformation. Wow. Breaking it down here, y'all, with Professor Nora. <laughs> we are talking about all the things related to press freedom, freedom of information, and, like, one of the things that have been, you know, near and dear to my heart, particularly with this conversation around disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation, learning some new stuff over here. But, like, you were talking about, like, the, the challenges in terms of balancing what is a very important fundamental right in terms of free, freedom of speech, but also recognizing this, this very real issue that we are having with intentional um, disinformation, right? And one of the things that through my, my writing and stuff more recently around the conversation around vote by mail has been this ever-present narrative around voter fraud, right? Yeah. And the way it's utilized. And that's something that's really interesting because that's a massive scale of disinformation that is being utilized by elected officials, by the heads of particular organizations, legal strategists, with certain political leanings, that are using this to justify taking actions that either lead to mass criminalization or just disenfranchising voters, right? We've seen two states now, um, Georgia and West Virginia form um, fraud task force complete with predominantly, um, you know, conservative uh, uh, prosecutors instead of taking steps to actually protect the vote, right? But like, we're also seeing this issue pop up like what we've just been talking about but there is this notion, because even people who will agree that this is bad, like spreading mass disinformation is bad, there are those who are the free speech absolutists, as I like to call them, right? And, like, I mean, you know, the right to free speech, we talk about absolute freedoms. At what point, though, 
in talking about protecting a freedom, do we like really start digging in with like the curtailing? And I know it's like a, it's a very, it's a very fine line for a lot of reasons, just as you noted that we actually see the impact of people like people who are actually doing, you know, having good commentary or good, but like factual or accurate commentary, not in, with the intent of, you know, disinforming or misinforming. But like we, at the same time, there is this very deep seated narrative that spreads through social media, these other different platforms that was I was talking about earlier, that is just like blatantly false and misinforming about half of the country, if not more. And so, like, how do we balance all these things? Like, like it's just so wild that there's a protected right to tell bold-faced-ass lies. But at the same time, <laughs> it's like I wrote a piece a while back when, there was, when, when Alex Jones was getting banned from Twitter or whichever platform. I wrote an article for Huffington Post about uh, op-ed about, like, you know, protecting Alex Jones' free speech. I'm, you know, thinking yeah. about someone that's coming from, a, you know, a, a systemically oppressed, traditionally oppressed community, like protecting Alex Jones's free speech does not protect mine, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, and I find that argument, like, that's a really great, cute academic philosophical argument, but it just seems like there needs to be an added layer in there when we're talking about the rights and freedoms of, like, you know, BIPOC, traditionally underrepresented communities, um, you know, queer communities, disabled communities, like all these communities that have been systemically left out. Basically everyone who's not like white cisgendered male, right? Like, yep. I mean, with some exceptions, you know, they're not everyone's food the same way. But seriously, though, there seems to be a different conversation because, you know, when people were talking about, oh, my God, you know, we, we have to protect Alex Jones' rights because it protects ours, I was like, fuck that shit. Protecting Alex Jones does not protect me. Like, it just doesn't. And, and, and we are foolish to say otherwise. So, like, the work that you all do with journalists, and you have all different types of journalists that, that you all work with this pen, um, like, how, how do we, just thinking about just, just the larger conversation around freedom of speech, um, and how not all speech is protected equally. I mean, this is, this is a very real issue that we're still grappling with. And on the one hand, I'm not in favor of the government cracking down and limiting anyone's speech. And Facebook, I think, does a horrible job. <laughs> but well, we're getting time, into some of the hardest stuff. I mean, that's yeah. the question of are you willing to, and not just you but any of us, are we willing to fight for the idea that if someone else's speech is violated, that can set a precedent for my speech being violated? And at the end of the day, I'm, I mean, I very candidly always talk about that. I believe that we must fight for even the ideas or for the expression and the right of people to express ideas that we don't like. Now, that is different from giving it more oxygen. And people like Alex Jones, for example, I find categorically at a personal level, I have zero interest in talking about because I'm like, that fans flames more. And what we want and what I want to be talking about, what I think we should be talking about, are all of the ways that the voices that end up getting most censored are often dissenting, marginalized, people of color voices, queer voices, you know, anyone that is disrupting or trying to upend a status quo, trying to tell stories that people don't like. You know, I'll give you just two examples of it because this is other aspects of our work. 
you know, one of the things we do is we, we monitor the privacy issues um, affecting journalists and activists who work on the border. And what we've seen is a rise in efforts by our government to target journalists that are trying to report on the immigration crisis. Mm-hmm. This started about a year or so ago, a little more than that. And it's just continued. And what it does is, you know, everyone has, let's say, rights to report on things, except if it feels like the stories being reported on are ones that the government doesn't want unearthed. And it really seems to me that we can absolutely fight for, and I do believe in, all of us having the ability and we should have the right to express ourselves. The problem is that so often who gets to actually voice their opinion or gets the most oxygen in a room are very specific groups. And I'll give you a big, big prelude. This is like a secret. I shouldn't even be talking about it, but we're about to release a report examining um, legislative assaults on the right to protest around the U.S. And it's coming out in a couple of weeks. And what we examine are ways that legislators often try to target protest activity that is either pipeline related, Black Lives Matter targeting, or other minority groups that are engaged in tactics that legislators don't like. And we're seeing this now like come home in so many ways where, you know, groups that are on the far right are engaging in protests and Trump applauds them, you know, and says that they're very fine people who storm a state capitol armed with guns. But groups that are more marginalized then get targeted and treated as criminal. And it's one of the tiny examples, I would say, of this larger problem. You know, in another context, we're seeing disinformation laws where individual uh, countries are trying to target and clamp down on disinformation. So they pass laws that criminalize the purveyors of fake and false information. But what is actually getting promoted, I think, is the prosecution of reporters that are trying to report in critical ways of the government. Even in the U.S., we're seeing people in Puerto Rico, like the governor there, has passed a new amendment, will also criminalize basically anyone that, quote unquote, promotes or reports on things falsely. And the worry that I have is the way those types of statutes can be weaponized to target and silence dissent. And so it's honestly all part of the same problem, that if we're talking about speech, we have to talk about equitable speech and who gets oxygen. If everyone has a right, why are certain people targeted and censored more? And so honestly, it's, I think, unfortunately been a term, you know, free speech that's co-opted very often by certain ideological groups. And of late in the last few years, it's been the far right that's really said, my free speech are violated free speech rights are violated when X, Y, or Z happens. And we have to, you know, promote a view that other groups are also having those rights violated, whether it's reporters or activists or others. So um, at every chance we get, I would say we elevate those stories instead of the Alex Jones stories, because he'll always find ways and avenues to talk about his issues. Absolutely, absolutely agree with that. And I appreciate that framing, too. And, you know, who we choose to use as a test case for things, like, definitely matters and how we're setting the tone. And the same attention and focus is not put on, you know, the fact that we do have so much um, dismissal of dissent in varying ways, right? And when you and I were first talking about 
about, you know, this conversation, we were talking about targeted, framing it in terms of like targeted dissent, right? Like how dissent is being targeted in various ways. So whether it's the 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 um, journalists that are being barred or denied entry or having or individuals having, um, you know, security passes revoked in with the current administration from the White House, or whether we're talking about, you know, activist organizers or even, you know, independent freelance journalists that are trying to speak up and raise awareness, bring attention. I mean, when we think about press freedom in the global context, yes, in many instances, American-based journalists are lucky in the sense that we have not necessarily had to, um, and at least in this current iteration of, you know, society and life, had to deal with maybe some of the more, like, violence in even though there, I'm not going to say there hasn't been any threats of jail because there are individuals that I've had to deal with that, but that's not something to rest on our laurels, so to speak, right? We are watching the decimation of local journalism, and we did talk about how there is infusion and new energy, but part of also thinking about, like, this targeted of dissent, if we don't have, like, the actual funding infrastructure and support to really tell the stories that are challenging these systems that are lifting up the voices of people who are pushed to the margins and beyond, you know, that is, that is effectively cutting off like any real critique and analysis of what's happening um, across government, across decision-making at multiple levels. And then, so, and then conversely journalists, people who are stepping into these spaces to cover certain stories, I would submit from my personal experience, approximately two years ago <laughs> and and just in general we have a responsibility and a duty and a care it's not that you can't critique people who also are part of you know communities that have been pushed to the margins but at the same time like that coverage there should be a care in how we're covering people so that we're not further marginalizing people right we're not further dismissing or or, or miss or misinforming, like you were talking about earlier, the framing of stories. It might be a cool headline. It might get you some clicks. It might be good. And, yes, I'm still bitter about what Johnny Kaufman did to me two years ago. <laughs> and try I to remember. Think, yeah, rush it up. It's I remember that, and I think years. about it a lot. It's been it about two years. years. It could happen to any of us. But it's like there is, like, we talk about objectivity and fairness and accuracy in journalism, right? But those concepts are like, it's like, it's like tofu, right? Or rice. Those concepts are colored or they're flavored by whatever you add to it, whatever your lens is, right? It's not like objectivity is this one specific thing that everybody universally understands and everybody has been socialized to do it the same exact way. What is objective? What is fair? What is fundamentally fair? what is accurate is through a lens of how you're socialized and what's your personal values on whose voices and stories matter. And so that is actually something that I learned going through that whole process with, with, with them, with the NPR ombudsman when the story was reran without them even talking to me uh, two months later. Um, but like, there is a real care and concern and people treat oftentimes folks who don't have like, big name organizations behind them if they're an advocate or an activist or an organizer, or if they're not like a politician or somebody who's considered important, there seems to be yeah. greater care when someone's deemed important. And then even within that, because we could even talk about the coverage of what happened with um, 
oh, former candidate for, for governor in Florida. My, I oh, see his face. Yep. Um, I know. Black man. This is yep. horrible that my Gillum. mind is blanking. Andrew Gillum. Yes. You know, we even see the coverage of how of how Andrew Gillum was treated, you know, recently with, uh, you know, personal situation that was exposed publicly. Like, even that coverage, right, and just the basic value for him as a, you know, human being in a compromised position, not saying that people shouldn't cover something like that from someone who has, like, the public trust, but at the same time, there is a way that people in situations are covered. Um, when they're deemed valuable, right, and, 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 and depending upon whose lens and view of value. Oh, hello. Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, my God. How, I mean, a good, another good example, I think, is like the whole Dapper Dan coverage of um, Richard uh, Spencer, right, back in like 2017 or whenever it was. You know, he had this whole like, I don't know if it was GQ or Mother Jones. I can't remember which art, which outlet it was, but like the way he was covered, it was all like polished and suave, and like this is someone who has like very vile like personal beliefs and stuff. And then you juxtapose it with you know um, what we see in young black and Latino um, youth and how they're covered in the media, right? Whether they're actually accused of something, but you know, I mean, like it shouldn't even matter. There is a fundamental value of humanity and who is worth. Uh, uh, projecting a better image of and who isn't that is a part of I think all of this conversation as well when we're talking about like how are we disseminating information and the responsibility that journalists and those who work with journalists also have in terms of how we are lifting up and and, and conveying truth yeah well and I think it's you know I don't have an answer because at this point no 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 I don't need (laughs) yeah um but I do think at every opportunity, we should try for both ways. I think, you know, the more classically like social justice, I put that in quotes, like social justice communities have often, in my experience, when I worked very deeply in those spaces, thought less of these larger like storytelling and narrative shaping issues like news and journalism and truth. And I, I think journalists also then reject and ignore and do not look at some issues that need to be elevated. And so I, I guess in placing value on something, the media needs to absolutely do this and shift what it sees as a priority in storytelling. And I think communities like myself and you, in being able to be voices that straddle both of those worlds, I think it would be really powerful to make urgent for people why something like disinformation, for example, actually affects all of us and in particular will affect disenfranchised voters. Because when you make that leap and the link for people, it becomes so, so powerful. But if it it feels rather diffuse, you know, it's sort of this thing like, well, it doesn't affect me right now. And the truth is, right now, people are concerned about money because of the pandemic. They're concerned about childcare. Like, I realize that some of these more abstract and further away threats may not feel relevant. And part of my job, I think, is to make them relevant for people and to talk about it in ways where it's like, yeah, you have to understand what kinds of video content you're seeing because it may shape your views that you're not even aware of and affect our 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Like, those are very immediate threats for democracy. We just have to make the, the case for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely, I definitely appreciate what you're saying there. And no, the, no, we're not neither one of us. I mean, the only answer I have is that people should give me lots and lots of money so that we can continue to do dope content and reach more and more people. And then I can hire a street team to get more and more people listening so they can get or reading and so that they can get like the good information. That's like really the only answer I have to this. this well, that is the answer. It's literally it's like, the footwork every day, every day. Right, right, right. Building it out some more. So, I mean, World Press Freedom Day. Tell us what what else does Penn have down the coming down the pipeline? Oh, <laughs> so much. Well, I gave you a preview of our upcoming report that's coming out mm-hmm. that looks at the right to protest, and it examines five years, the most recent five years of state legislative proposals that target protest rights, trying to expand criminal penalties or expand the definition of what's criminal, um, basically to limit our First Amendment rights. So that's coming out in May. We're also doing a series of programs on the disinformation front to try to work with communities, of course, virtually now, to learn how to identify this and this information. So those are ongoing efforts, like all the time we're doing these programs and we're looping in local journalists. So maybe you can join us at some point to talk mm-hmm. about how there is a link to news and that we all need to get better at discerning what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And then let's see, one more piece, because I want to close on the World Press Freedom Day thing, is we've been working on advocacy with Capitol Hill We just sent a letter to all members of Congress pushing for stimulus funds in this next stimulus round to include Mm -hmm. support for local journalism. And we just sent letters to all 50 governors, as well as the mayor of D.C., for the same type of request, urging governors to provide emergency coronavirus funds for reporting so that journalists can continue to do their job. So that is some of the fun advocacy. And what I would close with, I guess, is, People always say things like, well, what can we do now? We're at home. And I think the worst thing that we can feel is a sense of apathy or disempowerment, like somehow our voices don't matter. So I just put out a piece on Medium about all the ways that you can email your governor and all of the things to ask for, such as them to support and speak out on the importance of stimulus funds for local news, including especially minority community of color outlets, and new innovative models. And then if you want, I'll share it with you so that you can share it when you promote the podcast. Like everyone should be writing their elected officials, everyone. Mm -hmm. Because if we reach that level of civic engagement, especially while we're all at home, that is the type of thing that can move the needle in making elected officials feel like there is some kind of pressure that they have to take action. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm Absolutely, absolutely. This has been a special edition of the Way of Anoa for World Press Freedom Day. I was joined by Nora Benavidez from PIN America, and we've just been chopping it up about all the things. What are the responsibilities of journalists now in this moment of COVID-19, the importance and value of local journalism, like real salt-of-the-earth solutions journalism, even, would you dare you say, um, and then we, we get in, we got into a bunch more. So I appreciate you all tuning in and listening. Definitely continue to follow along and check out Pen America and definitely follow follow Nora. Her links and handles are in the show notes. And hopefully, <laughs> at Attorney Nora, at Attorney Nora, Nora. Nora is my social media guru. 
at Attorney Nora. Follow Nora. Nora knows what's up for real. Um, and then like and subscribe to the Way with Manoa podcast. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Noah. I am, I am working on getting more consistent content back up and for you guys. It's been, you know, a little bit of a hike trying to get the health back together, but I'm here. I ain't going nowhere. So thank you so much, Nora. I appreciate you. Thank you.